This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This Kindle book is brought to you by Dr. Damien Dauphiné, discussing specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic populations. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. Our podcast brings you into the world of podiatric foot and ankle medicine and surgery, discussing everything from common everyday complaints complex and unusual problems and their treatment options. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussain, fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon, and together we are the Pod Doctors. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows discussing the amazing foot and all the crazy ways it can malfunction and causes problems. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Dr. Hussain. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné. And we are the, the Pod, Pod Doctors. Doctors. So today we're talking about bunions. Yes, the uh, the foot deformity with the funny name. <laughs> so very, very common thing that we see in clinic. Uh, bunions, the big bump on your big toe. You can give them a name like in the cartoon. But what is it? I mean, it's a very common problem, but what really is it, you know? So typically patients come in with a big bump on their big toe, usually on the medial side. And their main complaint is that it's uh, pressing against their shoes or or it's sore, it's red, it's swollen. And then we got to determine if it's a bunion, if it's a gout, it's an inflammation of some sort, if it's capsulitis, uh, hallux rigidus. But Sometimes uh, they come in, they think, they assume it's some growth. It's, yeah. It's this massive tumor and it's actually just a malpositioned joint. So yeah. Essentially, it's a joint issue. Um, based on the position of, of the first ray. So that's important to distinguish for folks that it's, you know, it's not some growth. We don't just go in and shave off the bump to fix these. They're way more complex than that. Yeah. Uh, back maybe, I don't know, 100 years ago when they used to do bunion surgeries, that was the treatment. And we even learned, up until the 70s and early 80s, that was the those treatment. Those were older doctors <laughs> doing that. Uh, most um, We're fixing those now. Yeah. For the second time. Yeah, most uh, skilled surgeons won't be just shaving the bump down because one, it's going to come back, and two, it's not fixing the origin of the problem. And it's not realigning the joint. So, oh, yeah. you know, half the goal is we want to save cartilage with these. So if you can realign the joint, you can save cartilage. Yeah, so what we see in clinic is the patient comes in typically with a bump on their big, big toe, the big toe joint, and it's red hot swollen, tender, might get calloused, might rub against their shoes. As you can see from these pictures, that the joint alignment is what the problem is. Just like Dr. D just said, the first metatarsal, here I, got my, I brought my foot today, getting fancy. Oh, nice. So the first metatarsal, right, it's your fancy foot, first metatarsal deviates out. And what ends up happening is the toe deviates in. And you end up riding on part of that joint. So it's bone and cartilage, uh, you know, pretty much your origin for osteoarthritis. 
you're writing on half the joint, it becomes tender, becomes painful. Usually when it's mild, it's not that noticeable. They'll notice some light aches and pains, you know, depending on shoe, depending on activities, depending on whatever they're doing, exercises. But usually once it gets bad, it starts getting progressively bad pretty quick. There is a maternal dominance for bunions. I don't know. I don't remember, I don't remember what the percentage is. I think it's like 60, 70% dominant or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's more common in women. Yep. And uh, if you get it, I guess you can blame your mom. Uh, causes, uh, flat feet, low arches, narrow shoes, foot injury, inflammation, genetics. It's probably the most common. And that's cause. a little misleading because I think the narrow footwear can exacerbate it. Yes. But is it actually causing it? No, probably not. It's still more, you've inherited the preponderance or you've inherited the foot structure that leads to this. You can certainly make it worse and make it painful by wearing those shoes. Yeah. Uh, no, not helping. Not helping at all. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's interesting that, that that you've got the slide here with the neuromuscular conditions. We do see this more commonly in people who have neuromuscular conditions, genetic, genetic disorders, Ehlers-Danlos being a collagen uh, disease where they just have really lax joints. Yeah. So they, they tend to have stability problems with all kinds of joint issues. Rheumatoid arthritis, very, very common. And rheumatoid Down patients. syndrome, yeah, it is more common in Down's patients, yes. So there's a little severity scale I put in here. So our general advice is always catch it early, fix it early, because if you can catch it early, it's usually the um, least likely to ever come back type of situation. And when you start to see in that very far right picture, that crossover second toe, we have entire days dedicated to that particular problem in our national foot and ankle surgical meetings. It's that difficult to correct. So Because it's not just yeah. the bunion we're fixing there. Right. We're fixing the hammer toes and the metatarsals associated and with it. Dislocated toes. I mean, yeah. they, they get to that stage. They are no longer sitting where they're supposed to be, and those are extremely difficult to fix. So uh, this was a little tips and tricks on soothing bunion pains. It's just like any type of other aches or pains, you know, ice pack, stretch, good shoes, and analgesics, good orthotics. How does the bunion form? So like how Dr. D said, your first ray, your first metatarsal deviates out. It's due to a lack of stability of that first metatarsal tarsal joint, your first metatarsal cuneiform joint, and it, it subluxes, it, it rotates out. Uh, if you're looking at it, you know, this is your second metatarsal, this is your first metatarsal, it'll rotate out just slightly and deviate over towards your other foot. Um, and that's what causes the, the bunion deformity, that bump that you're seeing. That first metatarsal head is what you're seeing on that. Uh, right, you're, you're uncovering the head. So a little um, biomechanics I thought I'd thrown in there. Things that we're looking for, it's not just that we're seeing that there's a bump there. We're seeing, you know, before surgery, we're looking at, you know, stability, your, your hypermobility of that first metatarsal. If it's reducible, if it's not reducible, if it's tracking, uh, simple things that you can see on the x-rays, if the first metatarsal is elevated, um, these are things that we're looking for in clinic. It's not just a, you know. Because that's going to help us determine the best procedure for that particular bunion. Because yeah. there's, you know, 50 different ways you can There's 180 bunion. plus different ways. I just that's read a paper crazy. a little while back. It's that's, an older paper. And uh, they, they had a little graphics in there on all the pictures. I probably should have thrown it in I there. think every surgeon probably uses maybe four or five. Yeah, four or five that we typically use. Maybe in our bag of tricks, maybe 10 for like the one-off mm-hmm. type of procedures. But yeah, I typically, yeah, I agree. Four to five that I'm typically using to correct it. And I'm, and very, you know, um, on very old, uh, degrees and angles and problems that are associated with it. Um, conservative options, say for the patients who, you know, want to postpone it, they're, they're working. Hey, I want to do it during some vacation. I want to do it next year. I want to do it, you know, the, whenever my deductibles met, you know, 
so conservative options, we've got like rocker bottom shoes, a uh, simple way to take the stress off those joints. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that make these type of shoes. I know it was really popular a while back, uh, like Kim Kardashian and all those were rocking the, the rocker bottom shoes, but really they're orthopedic shoes. They're, they're meant to take the stress off those joints, really good for arthritic pains in the foot also. Uh, orthotics here, I put in a couple of um, modifications that we uh, typically do, but there's a bajillion. Uh, that's, that's a medical term. A whole host term. of them, right. Yeah. We're pretty much trying to optimize the foot position so it's most biomechanically sound. So when you are walking and you when you are, you know, doing your activities, exercising, working, you know, spending those hours and hours on your feet, that your foot hopefully is a little bit more comfortable and we're slowing down the progression. We're not reversing it. Nothing's going to reverse it. There's no injection. There's no orthotics that are going to fix a bunion, but this is hopefully going to make it a little bit more comfortable and slow down the progression. <laughs> toe spacers. What do you feel about toe spacers, Dr. D? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are the gel ones. You know, if they're really not interested in surgery, I think this is a good way to keep the toes apart because I think a lot of folks get that callus or that corn on the on the side of the second toe for what the big toe is doing to the second toe. So that can be helpful. It can keep those guys apart, keep that corn from being a, a problem. But yeah, these are typically not going to be an answer. They're certainly not going to reverse the mechanics that are causing it in the first place. So I think it's a palliative thing you can do. I like the one that one you had in the middle, at least it covered the bunion bump. So, you know, if it, that kind of sleeve, that silicone gel sleeve that you can put over the first ray, I think is helpful. Yeah, it protects them from the shoe rubbing against mm -hmm. them. Um, a lot That's of our not patients, bad to use even after surgery because it protects the scar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of our patients are, are older and sometimes they're kind of hesitant on surgery. These are good things to hopefully make them a little bit more comfortable. But like Dr. D said, it's not going to reverse it. It's not going to fix the problem. It's only going to soothe some of the pains that's associated with it. There's a lot of devices out there. I put a couple of pictures in there, like stretching devices. The problem isn't that your toe is being stretched one way or another. The problem is that that first metatarsal is deviating over and that toe is coming back, trying to get back into its normal position. Um, there's, there's a lot of these funny devices out there, but they claim to fix bunions. They don't work. There's, I mean, I'll be honest. I've never seen them work. There's no papers that show that they work. There's, right. there's literal, I don't know. If you want to spend your money on it, by all means, but hopefully, you know, someone can give us a success story. Yeah, it's a surgical problem. It just, it is what it is when it gets to a certain point. I think my my protocol for that is essentially when people start getting internal joint pain. So when the great toe joint starts to be painful it's in, in the joint itself, or you start to see what the big toe is doing to the rest of the toes, it's starting to deform the rest of the toes it's time to fix it because otherwise you're going to end up having to fix all the digits. Yeah. Much bigger surgery, a lot more potential for comp wound, wound healing complications, other complications. So that's really where I, where I sit with that. When to do it is really when you start getting internal joint pain or it starts to deform the other toes. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because you've got cartilage loss when it's, when you're getting internal joint pain and that, that hyaline cartilage isn't coming back. Once you've worn it away, Yeah. it's toast. Yeah. hundred uh, percent agree. So let's talk about the different type of bunion surgeries that we typically do. And this is just a broad overview. I'm not going to teach you how to do these, but broad overview. Distal bunionectomies. These are probably our bread and butter type of bunionectomies. Um, you can walk the same day after surgery. Use one or two screws to fixate them. Some people still use K-wires. Some people use other things. But most commonly, most people use one or two screws. What we're doing is we're going in, we're shifting that distal metatarsal head over as you can see in the picture. So you're shaving a little bit of the bump just to get a flat surface to be able to make that osteotomy. Yeah. 
So, but the real work is being done by moving the head over and closing down the distance between your first and second metatarsals. Yeah, what so we want to do. That, yeah, it's, you're cutting it in half. If you can do that, you're good. Yeah, and what we want to do is pretty much position that head of that metatarsal back over those sesamoids because the sesamoids don't move. And we're trying to get them back over to where they're supposed to be. Here, there's two different types, uh, Kalish and Youngswick. The Youngswick is something that we'll do if you have really arthritic joint or if there's joint space narrowing or if there's spurring up there, we'll do the Kalish modification. Pretty much what it's doing is just giving you an extra two, three millimeters of space in that joint and uh, decompressing it and, and shortening it and plantar Gives flexing more, it. more room to put a couple of screws. Yeah. Um, so here's the Youngswick modification. I just thought uh, that actually, take a look at that. Uh, yeah. That's a nice spur. That's what happens when you have a significant bunion or if you have a lack of motion in that joint, you get what's called hallux rigidus, and we'll do another lecture on that. But what ends up happening is you end up wearing away that joint, that bone-on-bone -bone contact causes spurring, you get that lipping. Here you can even see a little joint mouse. And what we do is we try to shorten that joint, hopefully preserve that joint as much as we can, get back to the healthy cartilage and, and fixate it. Yes, he said joint mouse. That's <laughs> actually what it's called. A little fragment floating in the joint. It's called a joint mouse. I'm not sure who coined that term, but silliness, but that's what it's <laughs> called. Here's a little uh, cartoon type picture of, uh, of what's really being done. We're sliding it over. Very simple, very effective. Scarf bunionectomy. This is for a little bit bigger than what you would use for a distal type of um, bunion procedure. And this is, if you do woodworking, you know what scarfing a joint is. You make that little L type of fixation and then you can put your screws across there. Very stable. Not commonly one in my bag of tricks. I do it, you know, every so often. But, you know, what about you, Dr. D? Yeah, we did these in residency, and I don't think I've done them since. So Yeah, there's I a lot just, of other I've procedures. Found, found better ways. Yeah. Closing base wedge. This is very popular. Go in, we do a wedge-type resection at the base. So uh, if you're doing any type of, you know, if you're, you know, this is your pendulum, right? If we do a wedge here, we bring that wedge down. We're, we're correcting uh we're correcting much, much more severe deformities. That works really well. Yeah. And here, if you're paying attention, you can see the fixation with the plates and screws. But if you look at the proximal phalanx, that big toe, right, you see that one screw across there. That's called an Aiken bunionectomy. I thought I'd throw that in there because a lot of patients don't realize we're doing, you know, multiple bones. So an Aiken bunionectomy, it's usually used as an adjunct, very rarely used on its own. But uh, pretty much every bunionectomy I do, I throw one of those in. So what we're doing is so we're, powerful. Yeah, we're, we're bringing that toe over because that joint has slowly worn away or compressed on one side or, or your genetics caused it to be deformed. And what we're doing is we're bringing that toe back over parallel to that second toe. And some folks simply have a curvature yeah. of their proximal phalanx. So, yeah, you address it easily with that, that procedure. Yeah. I use an oblique version, put a screw across it. Yeah, screws, staples, yep. there's a lot of different ways, K-wires, and whatever you're uh, preferred. I think I use typically staples most mm -hmm. often. Very, I don't know, maybe 20, 30? 20, 30. Two-thirds, one-third. Two-thirds, one-third, sure. <laughs> Lapidus bunionectomy. This is for uh, your large, large bunions. So, <laughs> And you've got the anchor man. That's, that's it's an impressive point. bunion, right? It is. Um, what we do is we go back to the base, the origin of the problem. That's when we were checking to see if it was hypermobile. If there's too much mobility there, we want to address that mobility. We go back to that joint, we bring it over, we realign it. The benefit of the lapidus, if you you know look up the lapoplasty, it's very popular right now, but there's a thousand other jig type surgery similar to it. What it does, it's going to bring it over Second metatarsal, first metatarsal, as it deviates over when you get a bunion, it rotates a little bit. So 
when we bring it over sometimes, if it's not that big, it's not, you'll never notice a difference. But when you have a large bunion, it rotates excessively when it gets to that last few degrees. So what we're doing is we're re-rotating and bring it back over and then obviously fixating it. These are great. This yeah. is probably my second favorite bunionectomy now. And we did very few of them in residency, but it's something that's so much more powerful when you have instability. So when you can really see that first ray instability, this is the procedure of choice for sure. Yeah, 100% agree. This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation. The Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation is a charitable 501-3C organization that supports residency training of podiatric residents in Texas and provides access to care for underserved populations in the United States and Mexico. If you wish to donate to the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation, please go to our website, www.thepoddoctors.com and donate. Thank you. Very popular now, it's coming back into style. I don't know what you want to call it, favor. Um, So minimally invasive bunions, they were done multiple, multiple decades ago that uh, it was really popular maybe in the 80s, 90s, decades sounds like so long ago very 40 years yeah uh, but it used to be very popular they used to fix in with k wires and small screws and stuff Uh, the selling point on these type of bunionectomies was the small incision i mean you do two or three one centimeter incisions you go in and fixate them that way originally and um some of the new literature shows that these bunionectomies were more prone to failure more prone to non-unions. I try to stay away from these. There are the occasion, you know, defining, depending on the ideal type of patient or candidate. But I don't know. What about you, Dr. D? Yeah, I just never found a whole lot of use for minimally invasive bunionectomies because I think the severity of the ones we're seeing um, require uh, more stable fixation uh, I could see doing this maybe in a patient who's vascularly compromised and yeah. you don't want to make big incisions. But, you know, again, is that someone who needs bunion surgery in the first place? Uh, yeah, you got to question that. So, yeah, they don't they don't have a place in my practice. I know the popularity kind of comes and goes. I think the popularity originally was was based on lack of access to the operating room. And people could do these in their offices. So surgeons were doing these in their offices. That's really not a problem anymore. We have... Tremendous access to ORs everywhere now. And Hospitals, so, surgical centers, yeah. ambulatory centers. So it's it, to be able to do it in a more controlled environment. I don't know that I would do a minimally invasive surgery to correct a severe bunion um, on someone that I could take to the OR and, and make sure that I was precise with all of my cuts and I was precise with my fixation. I think you're going to get better outcomes that way to throw minimally invasive under the bus too badly, but I just, yeah, it just doesn't fit in my practice protocol at all. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's it's per doctor. Look, if it works good in, in their hands or in your hands or whoever's listening, um, by all means. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's not in my bag of tricks that I use too often. Very, not, you're not going to, bone healing isn't going to be any faster. Yeah. So all you're asking maybe is, is that your incision line heals a little faster because it's too small incisions. Yeah, most of us yeah. are doing very plastic types of incisions. Right. I use absorbable stitches. I mean, what we're trying to do is get, you know, the most aesthetically pleasing uh, incision. Have you used uh, the zip stitch? Have, have I told you about this? You have, and I have not yet, no. So it's like, uh, side note, 
tangent. Zipstitch is like the newest version of uh, Stereo Strips, and they're they're all snazzy because you put the stereo on one side of the incision and the other side of the incision, and it has the like little um, zip ties. They they have the little zip ties on top of them. And you kind of crank them, crank them, crank them, bring them together. Like I said, I use absorbable stitches. I use that, and the incisions look great. And if you're really concerned about incisions, you know, afterwards you can use like the silicone dressings or the Mederma creams or vitamin E oil. I had a plastic surgeon back when I was doing training who swore by vitamin E oil. He'd use them for all his facelifts and stuff. Recovery. So like Dr. D said, time frame on bone healing does not change depending on how big your incision is or how small your incision is. Six to eight weeks on average for the average adult for most you know, bone healing processes. Young patients, you know, younger kids, you know, maybe four to six weeks of pushing, but six to eight weeks on average. Depending on the type of bunion procedure you're doing, you might put them in a surgical shoe or a boot, or if you're doing like a lapidus, most of the time patients will have to remain off weight bearing, you know, crutches, knee walker, knee scooter. I don't know. What do you think, Dr. D? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I like you know, for lapidus, they're usually in a splint for the weekend and then a fiberglass cast up to the knee Yeah. for about two weeks. Then we take the stitches out, put them back in another cast for another probably three weeks and then get some x-rays. Yeah. So at five weeks, if we like the way things look, uh, we'll go ahead and let them walk in a cam boot or a removable walking boot. Yeah. Yeah. It's all based on stability. What we're trying to do is keep everything locked up. These boots, cast splints, they're meant to hold that bone in the ideal position after we've done their surgery and fixated everything. They're still kind of frail. So that's protection. Your boot, your cast, it's there to protect you. Make sure that, you know, you don't bump it in the middle of the night. Uh, I have my patients treat their boots like a cast, you know, mm -hmm. keep it on 24-7, even when you're sleeping. For That's the most smart, part. yep. Bunions, very common. I don't know what else there is to say about it. Um, here's a little before and afters on mild to moderate to large bunions. You can see how the mild versus the large bunions, you can kind of see how it's affected the lesser digits. That's why we try to do them when they're early, because if we can catch them early, we can prevent them from hopefully becoming a problem and causing, you know, your other toes to become a problem. Well, that's it for bunions. <laughs> I think that was a great overview. We could talk a little bit more about, you know, pre-op and post-op. So <clears throat> for the average patient who has no other medical problems, young, healthy, they're in their 20s, uh, are you getting blood work, EKG, the whole workup or... or so uh, obviously x-rays before surgery, um, we're doing blood work, you know, very basic labs, um, EKGs, if they're stable and there's no history of heart problems, we typically don't have to. Pregnancy checks, you know, if yep. you're female. Uh, and then for the elderly diabetic patient. Oh yeah, hemoglobin uh, A1C. Usually getting them cleared by their primary just to oh. make sure they're, it's not really a medical clearance, it's really just to make sure they're optimized. We want to make yeah. sure that they're as tuned up as they can be before they have elective surgery. Yeah, we, I try to avoid um, doing surgery on anyone who's an uncontrolled diabetic. And there's varying degrees of, you know, scales. I typically try to stay, you know, 8.0 down for elective procedures. There was a study out a couple years back that they showed that uh, if you have a hemoglobin A1C of 7.5 or higher, you're three times more likely to get a wound infection. I mean, that equates to like 6% of risk for wound infections for diabetics versus like, I think it was like, it was like 1.8, 1.9%. It's a significant jump. It's yeah. something you got to keep in mind for sure. What else do I do? Uh, pre-op pain meds. I, I like to give them their scripts and stuff. They get their boots pre-op. Um, they fill them the day before or, or a couple of days before surgery. Obviously, don't start them until after surgery. Just trying to limit the amount of stuff they have to do after the surgery. 
Yeah, yeah. I agree. I'm, I'm the same way. We tried to take care of all that in that first week before. Um, if they're going to be in a boot or if they're going to be non-weight-bearing, I do like to do either blood thinners or SCD devices. I try to favor more towards the SCD devices rather than the blood thinners. So those are sequential compression devices. Oh, right? yes. So. They're to prevent blood clots, your DVT devices. Some people like to do, you know, aspirins, type of aspirin regimen, depending on their their state. Some people like to do Lovenox. Problem, I think, with foot and ankle is there isn't a lot of data to suggest when we need to do it or when we need to do it all the time. So my, I would totally agree with Lovenox on someone I'm going to mobilize for six weeks. So if it's a yeah. lapidus or if it's a ankle fusion or some other major reconstruction, I think that's probably important. Maybe even combine it with an SCD on the other, on the opposite limb. But I, there's not a lot of data for everything else we do showing that these patients require some sort of anticoagulation which is great. I mean, I think yeah. that's awesome. Most of the time we're keeping people ambulatory. So it's really yeah. those folks that we know are going to end up in bed or they're going to end up in a cast. Those are the folks that we need to spend a little more time thinking about that because, you know, we've, we've both seen it happen. People end up with a DVT and they end up with a pulmonary embolism in the hospital. You know, that's, that's a crummy, um, that's a crummy outcome. So nobody likes that. And, and they can be deadly. 200,000 people a year die pulmonary embolism every year. So it's definitely a, something we need to look at. But thankfully, with the, with the way we keep people ambulatory or walking after surgery, most of the bunion surgeries we do, we don't need to do that. So Yeah, if you're walking and the blood is pumping, um, very low risk. Pain meds, um, like we said, I usually give some type of, you know, triplicate, some type of controlled substance like hydrocodone. And then I usually give them a mild pain medication. Uh, and sometimes I'll give muscle relaxers depending on the severity. Um, very, very mild dose. In short, you know, these are not, you know, going to be... Even if you took them every day, they wouldn't last you a week, you know, type of dosing. We like multimodal pain relief, absolutely. So we can combine a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory with a narcotic analgesic, maybe even add in gabapentin for folks that have uh, issues with, with pain after surgery in the past. So that combo works really well. We can even have them take, you know, things like Celebrex and gabapentin before the surgery, and that will calm down their peripheral nervous system. Yeah. So for the peripheral nerve stuff we do, that's important. People who've had a history of nerve pain after surgery, we try to even get crazier than that and, and get more, more aggressive with that and consider ketamine as one of the anesthetics. Yeah. So that, you know, it's a disassociative anesthetic and can be really helpful for people who have had nerve pain or CRPS symptoms after surgery. So we think about all those things. Um, Physical therapy. Do you do physical, physical therapy, therapy for I, bunions? Typically, it's just getting them walking again. If they have a stiff joint after a normal, you know, chevron bunionectomy or forefoot bunionectomy, you can send them to, to physical therapy and have them start working on range of motion. I think that is important. If you see that coming as a problem, the patient's maybe babied it too much. They're not doing enough walking and it's stiffening up. Yeah. Even in the best surgery, the best bunion surgery, you can have a joint that gets a little stiffer. When that becomes clinically relevant, I'll send them. For the vast majority of them, just getting them walking again in a tennis shoe after their bones healed. That's usually all. Yeah, all usually they're around week three, I have them doing pretty, you know, simple I, range of motion oh yeah, exercises. Passive range of motion, definitely. But it's like their home physical therapy. Exactly. But sending them off to to fit, to, to organize PT, I, I will do if I start to see that joint get stiff. And that does happen from time to time. I think those are all great points. Awesome. Well, folks, this is the Pod Doctors, and that was our episode on bunion surgery. Please like us, subscribe, and uh, check us out on YouTube as well. You can see the videos on YouTube. And if you have requests for topics that you want us to delve into a little deeper or something that we may have 
glossed over that's important to you, please let us know. And you can let us know through the website, thepoddoctors.com. Please go ahead and, and go to that website also to learn more about the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation and our medical mission trip, which is uh, every August. And we do we are accepting donations through a GoFundMe to be able to help support that medical mission project. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.